each of us have a heart, uh, I hope, here. And um, there's just certain moments when you're instantly humbled by um, something that you see or something that you witness. And I was telling the, the boys beforehand, I haven't got to witness um, someone who is blind uh, all of a sudden see or a cripple all of a sudden walk. Um, but seeing the miracle of salvation reminds me that we have much to be grateful for for all those in this room that know Jesus. And uh, so it's with a very humble heart that I approach um, tonight. And I'm, I'm just, it just, it's so encouraging to be reminded that our God's alive. Amen? Now, um, okay. So much to say. So little time. You've come on a very appropriate night. Well done, all right? Uh, Score for you. And uh, the reason I say that is um, we just finished uh, 1 Peter, 10 months in 1 Peter, and tonight we begin a brand new uh, journey. Now, we teach through the the, uh, books of the Bible verse by verse. We've uh, studied four books so far. Tonight we start our fifth. And the book that we're starting is, uh, is Daniel. Anyone excited about Daniel a little bit? Yeah. Okay, okay, I like it. Uh, well, I, I am as well uh, very excited, and I have much to say on why. But the first thing I want to talk about is this. Um, we come into a study of the book of the Old Testament with, I think, a great misunderstanding of what the Old Testament is. You see, uh, many of us uh, in the American populace could communicate certain truths about Jesus no matter how much time you spent in the church or not, because he, at least in America, is somewhat of a historical figure. Whether you believe him or not, that's a whole different story. But the Old Testament is different. You see, I would, I would, I would venture to say that the American populace could name things like the creation story, Noah's Ark, maybe Jonah in a fish that were all well represented on a felt board growing up in Sunday school. You remember the felt boards, right? You guys have those in your dorm room still, right? Yeah. Um, but, but beyond that, we don't have a good understanding of the Old Testament. Now, I heard uh, someone ask me one time, Mark, why is the Old Testament important? Because, um, it, it, like, it's old, right? And, and the New Testament is where Jesus is. And if you say that Christianity is all about Jesus, then what's the significance of the Old Testament? Thank you for asking. Um, I think that there's three reasons why we have uh, diminished the value of the Old Testament. The first is this, uh, that it bears the name old. It's like, you know, telling someone, all right, would you like an old car or a new car? It's like, uh, well, like, what do you, of, of course, like, we, we go with the new thing because the old is done. Uh, and so I think it, it's like, it, it scares us a little bit that this, it's old and, and rusty and there's dust settling on it. I think the second reason is because of its girth, right? Uh, the Old Testament takes up three-fourths of the scriptures. I would venture to say that in your Bible reading time, uh, there's probably been few of you that have remained consistent in reading the Old Testament Maybe just because it's so lengthy. And so the thought of getting from, like, like you need pictures, right? Like, the New Testament at least is short, but the Old Testament, dude, you're like, you're, you're waiting for the, you just want the kid Bible with the pictures and the squirting, you know, water coming out of it. You hook up a hose to it or something, you know, like, that's what we want. But lastly, I think this. I think we've, I think we've just not seen the value in it. We, we, we just don't read it because we, we just have simply not seen it as valuable. Let me say this. If you're interested in Jesus, then you're very interested in the Old Testament. Very interested in the Old Testament. If you're interested in knowing who uh, the Christ is, then you have a deep longing in you to understand the Old Testament. Why? 
Because when Jesus shows up, he says, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Well, where is the law and the prophets talked about? The Old Testament, right? When Jesus comes on the scene, he keeps repeating things that other prophets and other teachers in the Old Testament has said, especially a word like covenant. You cannot understand covenant, promise, that God has been building all throughout the scriptures if you don't understand the Old Testament. Let me say it this way. The power of the Old Testament is building toward Christ, Christ fulfilling all of these things that were written about in the Old Testament, and then everything post the Gospels, writing back about Jesus. So it brings great value to studying Daniel. Amen? But I have three, four more minutes on this subject. Uh, I, I, I sense that we just need to do an Old Testament survey, okay? Because I think many of us, again, we don't have a good understanding of the Old Testament, so I think it would be helpful for us to to take a bit of a course on the Old Testament here. Four minutes long, maybe four and a half. Savvy? We good? Okay, first slide. Very colorful. I chose these for you, all right? Now, these are the books of the Old Testament, 39 different books. There's approximately 28 different authors. Each color represents a different aspect or a different section of the Old Testament. Next slide. The first in the dark blue there is called the Pentateuch or the Law. Moses writes this, except the end. And uh, it's, it's, it's the law, it's the Ten Commandments. We see the creation in Genesis. And it's the beginning of God choosing his people, the nation of Israel. Next slide. The next section there is the historical piece. Beginning in Joshua, we see pretty much the rest of the Old Testament post the death of Moses. It goes all the way up until 444 B.C. Where there was a silence uh, in the scriptures. There's no books after that. So the historical pieces sum up pretty much the rest of the happenings in the Old Testament. Are we good? Next slide. Now, some of my favorite uh, books of the Old Testament are the poetic books. There is five of them, represented here by a very appropriate neon green. Uh, Many of you know the story of Job. Psalms is a brilliant work of uh, David and others. Proverbs, a a book of general uh, daily wisdom. Ecclesiastes, that vanity is, um, is worthless and the wisdom of man is meaningless. And Song of Solomon, some of you have studied. It's a pretty racy love story, right? If you, never, if you thought the Bible was just this very neat, tidy, read Song of Solomon tonight, right? And you'll, your eyes will be open to romantic comedy and other things, right? Now, um, comedy was probably the wrong word there. Now, um, the, the next five in the red um, are called the major prophets. You'll notice I helped us out here. I underlined Daniel, okay? Uh, this is where Daniel lands. Uh, Daniel is, a, is considered a major prophet, Uh, Daniel is split up into two different sections. The first is a narrative about Daniel and some of his friends. And chapter 7 through 12 is a um, prophecy. It's considered the the revelation to the Old Testament that revelation is to the New Testament. Right? Lastly, we have uh, a a total 17 books that are considered the prophets. We have the minor prophets. Now, the Old Testament, let me sum it up in in another 60 seconds. And I think we'll be be ready to move on. Um, Creation. And uh, here, God's people, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God chooses them, calls them, makes them his people. Um, then all of a sudden, they, um, they get enslaved by Egypt. And uh, God goes and pulls them out of slavery. And this is, this is an amazing event in the nation of Israel. They then come out, and many of you know the story of the parting of the seas and all this process. But God then gives them a law, the Ten Commandments, which many of us grew up in churches with it, plaster all over the walls. The whole purpose of the law 
was to show that these people could not follow it. So God gives ten rules, ten laws. This is how you obey me. And the nation of Israel is used in the Old Testament considerably and consistently to show man cannot follow it. And so all of these 39 books, that's the theme. Here's God's law. God redeemed you out of Egypt and you cannot follow the law in and of yourself. You need, you need some assistance and not just some assistance, but you need a savior. And so then when Christ comes on the scene in the New Testament and says, all the law and the prophets are fulfilled in me, what he's saying is all of these 39 books have been waiting on me and here I am, the fulfillment. And now through me, you can obey God. So Old Testament survey, are we good? Everyone has, have a basic understanding. Good or not, we're moving on, all right? Open your Bibles to Daniel. The page number is on your screen. This is going to be a lot of fun tonight. I said last week um, that we were going to get through verse 7. I lied. Um, as you can see here on the screen, uh, verse 2. <laughs> I, t- I told you last week like we were going to move at a little bit quicker pace through Daniel, and I'm not so sure right now. Um, if you like history, uh, tonight is going to be uh, your bag. If you, um, if you long to have a, a good contextual understanding of the scripture, um, then tonight you're going to have a whole lot of fun, okay? There is so much deep context rooted here in Daniel in these first two verses that will set up the rest of our journey. So are you ready, my friends? All right, here we go. Verse 1 of Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and, what's the word there? Besieged it. Anytime besieged is in the scripture, we instantly should get excited, right? Besiege, so fun. But we see here in the understanding of scripture that there's several questions we need to ask. And one of the first is, at what point was this written? Well, we get a little bit of an answer here, right? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. I'll put up my slide here of the kings of Judah during Daniel's time. Now, Jehoiakim, as you can see there, Jehoiakim, as you can see there, reigned from 609 to 597 B.C. In other words, about 600 years before Jesus came on the scene. Now, in the third year of Jehoiakim would naturally seem to what? To be what? Anyone? 60, hello? 606, right? Like 9 minus 3 equals 6, okay? Uh, But that's not the case. Here's why. According to the Babylon, uh, to the Babylon, the Babylonian calendar, rather, the first year of a reigning king isn't counted, and so Daniel writes this perspective uh, from Babylon, and so the the six oh nine actually minus three is six oh eight minus three, making it six oh five. Okay, so our story begins here in six oh five B.C. Now this is a huge date in the history of the Scripture, and we're about to see why. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of what? King of Judah. Just had a new baby born here uh, in um, Matthias, whose name is Judah. I think Judah's in the house tonight, isn't he? There he is right back there. Let's give it up for Judah. Welcome. So so well-timed, Judah's first Matthias service, and here we are talking about Judah. Brilliant. Well, what's Judah? Not the kid, but the term. Uh, Judah is this. Put up my map, please, the uh, kingdom of Israel here. Uh, Judah is the, the southern kingdom of this nation of Israel. Now, let me explain some things. What happens is there are three reigning kings, uh, King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. The year uh, nine, uh, 931, 
after Solomon's death, the nation of Israel splits into two, okay? The northern kingdom holds the name Israel, its capital, Samaria, as you can see there by the brilliant arrow. And the southern kingdom carries the name Judah. The northern kingdom has ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. But beginning in 931 until 722, when Assyria conquers the northern kingdom, all of its kings, the northern kingdom, were considered evil. All of them. Not so with Judah. Judah only has two tribes, both Benjamin and, appropriately, Judah. And some of its kings were good, and some of its kings were evil. So the period of time that we're talking about here is Jehoiakim is the ruler of Judah with its capital, Jerusalem, and it's 605 B.C. Savvy? Are we good? Now, into the fun stuff. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay, Uh, now first of all, what is Babylon? Babylon begins in Genesis chapter 11. Anyone know what happens in Genesis 11? There are these folks that believe that they can build a tower that can reach the skies. And so they begin to pile up brick and mortar, thinking that they could stack things high enough that they could reach God. That was called the Tower of Babel, the beginning of Babylon. From that point, all through the rest of the scriptures, ending around Revelation 14, Babylon is associated with sin, godlessness, a complete decay. It's a wreck. Babylon is just this, it's a very grotesque place. And in this case, Nebuchadnezzar is ruling over it. Now, fun story. How does Nebuchadnezzar come to rule? How many of you guys have seen the VeggieTales, uh, Nebi and the, right? Okay, six of us and the others of you are like, Veggie what? Like, what kind of hotel is this, right? Um, let me... Can I show you something? Put up the the Babylonian Empire. Now, here's what happens. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's father has a desire to take over the world. Okay, fair enough, right? And uh, he's doing so well. Problem is, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, or Nebuchadnezzar's father, comes down with a a tremendous sickness. He's dying. And so he turns to his son, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and says, "Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, look, it's your time now. Here, I'm going to give you the reins to the army. Now, what had happened at this point is Assyria, which ruled the northern kingdom of Israel, had completely conquered it, but Babylon was beginning to push Assyria back, okay? All the way into a city, uh, Carchemish, or Carchemish, it's pronounced a couple different ways. You can see up in the top part right above Syria. So all of Assyria is right there in that town, and so Nebuchadnezzar's job now is to go and attack, wipe out Assyria, world dominance. Well, there's another factor. You'll notice the kingdom of Egypt is just south. Uh, the Pharaoh at that time, a Pharaoh Necho, hears that Nebuchadnezzar is going to go and wipe out Assyria. So he thinks to himself, self, if I were a good warrior, which I am, what I should do is I should come up underneath the south and attack Babylon as they're attacking Assyria, and then just wipe them both out because they're going to be focused on each other. Bad move, right? So Nebuchadnezzar comes across the land, smokes Assyria. Assyria had been this this dominant world power, and just literally just blasts them to pieces. Then what happens? Nebuchadnezzar turns, 
and here comes Egypt. Now, Egypt had been this powerful, this powerful land with powerful rulers. And so Pharaoh Necho had come up thinking that this was time to wipe out the land. But guess what happened, my friends? Egypt, too, is completely obliterated. And so he wipes out Assyria, turns to his left, wipes out Egypt. And so this son of the emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, is now ruler of literally the world. He has conquered the two biggest powers in the world, wipes them clean. Assyria and Egypt never, ever again become an empire. And here he sits. And so he says, what next? Jerusalem, right? You see where he's at? He's up at Carchemish. Carchemish. He heads south to Jerusalem now. And that's where we find him besieging Jerusalem. He's like, if I want complete world domination, then I still have the southern kingdom of Israel. So he turns his army, and the scripture says he besieges it in 605 B.C. It's the first of three. He ends up on the third time destroying the temple in 586. Now, pause. There's so much more story, so let's, let's take a few breaks, okay? Um, can we see now that Nebuchadnezzar is probably struggles with arrogance, Okay? Uh, just, just put yourself in his shoes. And this is going to drive the drama of Daniel. Okay? You're a son of a great ruler. He sends you to lead the armies. You smoke all of the world powers. Then you turn to Jerusalem. You besiege it while you're just journeying through. Right? There, there's this sense of, there's a sense of like, I'm, I, I'm probably the best ruler of the world that there is. Now, VeggieTales doesn't depict this as Nebuchadnezzar. We don't understand this if we're just like reading through Daniel, but that's the context. Nebuchadnezzar is literally the ruler of the world. Now all of a sudden we have some context. Now all of a sudden the rest of the scripture that we understand and study Nebuchadnezzar, we're seeing a dude who has risen to power and has completely wiped everyone out. Now, the struggle, especially in the Old Testament, is to find ourselves there. Um... How quickly for you does success turn to arrogance? And let me say something specifically to Christians. How quickly for you does grace, perceived success, turn into arrogance? In other words, God was incredibly gracious and gave you a job. You perceive that as you're pretty gifted and talented. And rather than esteeming God, rather than thanking God, rather than recognizing it as grace, grace becomes strangely the catalyst to arrogance. That is backward. But can you see yourself there, friends? You see, I think, I think our initial reaction, like studying Daniel, is going to be to want to pin Nebuchadnezzar up on the wall and play pin the tail on Nebi, right? But, but, but we, need, we need to see ourselves here, almost as Nebuchadnezzar putting ourselves in his shoes, struggling with some of the same issues pre-Christ, especially that he's dealing with. So here's the scene. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and is going to besiege, uh, besiege Jerusalem and begin to take captive some of the people that are there. Verse 2. And the story gets so much more fun here, and I'm, I'm serious. Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Okay, Um, there's this word that we talk about all the time that is called sovereignty. 
God's plan, God's design, God's will. If you're reading the same scripture I am, then, then you're looking at this in, in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand. Hold on a second. King of Judah? Like Judah, like that's God's people. And this scripture says that, that God gave Jehoiakim and, and this nation of Judah into the hands of what? A pagan man from a pagan land that worships a pagan God, which we will learn about here in a moment. What has happened here? God, in his sovereignty, and we're going to see this picture by the end of tonight, is unfolding something beautiful. He often does that through struggle. Unfortunately for you and I, it's struggle when we throw our arms up in the air instead of resting and trusting in the sovereignty of God. In struggle is some of our greatest times as Christians to reveal the God that we believe in. And here in this moment will be no different for Daniel and his friends. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So basically here's what happens. The house of God is the temple of Jerusalem. I already mentioned in 586, all right, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to wipe out the temple. He's going to burn the temple to the ground. But here, he goes into the temple, Nebuchadnezzar or uh, an assistant of his, and, and they take vessels. This is probably gold or silver, possibly even from around the Holy of Holies, like the very place that the Jews believe houses the presence of God. He takes these out. And the scripture says what? That God allowed this. This temple is like the foundation, the formation for the Jews of this huge Mecca. And God allows Nebuchadnezzar to take these very precious things out and for Nebuchadnezzar to take them back to the lawn of Babel. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, which is another way of saying Babylon. Look at this. To the house of what? His God. And placed the vessels in what? In the treasury of his God. Now, do you want one of the craziest stories ever? Here we go. You don't have a choice, really. My question is, who's Nebuchadnezzar's God been? Right? Like, who do they worship in Babylon? Well, there was this goddess, ancient goddess named Tiamat. Can everyone say Tiamat with me? Tiamat ruled literally as a dragon of the waters of chaos was her title. Um, profound, Right? And what happens is she's one of the most, like she's the original essential goddess of Babylon. There are all these other gods, and all these other gods nominate one god to fight Tiamat. Well, guess who that god is? That god's name is Marduk. And so Marduk is chosen by all these lesser gods to fight Tiamat. And so Marduk shows up in the history of Babylon to fight Tiamat. So it's woman dragon thing versus this huge, and there's all kinds of pictures you can find on Marduk. Don't type in Marduk on uh, YouTube, I will say. Uh, some interesting bands come up uh, when you do that. Now all of you are going to do that. I shouldn't have said that at all, right? It's like waving candy in front of a baby, right? Now, here's what happens. Marduk and his uh, intelligence um, lures Tiamat and wraps Tiamat up in a net, and uh, when this happens to Tiamat, she opens her dragon mouth. And as she opens her mouth to swallow Marduk, Marduk blows her up like a balloon. Not sure how this happens, but it does, okay? He, he, he blows her up like a balloon. Then here's what happens. Marduk takes his, his arrow, wherever it is, he takes it, 
and he, he slayeth, right, Tiamat, right through the heart. But here's what happens. Because this arrow was so powerful, she literally breaks in half. Victory. But here's what happens. Marduk, in that moment, takes half of her and makes the heavens, and then takes the other half and makes the earth. Hence, we have the Babylonian creation story. So Marduk slays Tiamat, takes her broken body, and makes the heaven and the earth. And in Babylon, they call Marduk the king of kings, and later he, he coins the term bel for himself, which means, anyone? Lord. So in Babylon, they worship this god of all gods. There's many gods there, but the god of all gods, the chief god, is Marduk. And Marduk is who, in this sense, Nebuchadnezzar takes these things of the temple and he brings them and he sets them in his house of worship so that he can worship Marduk, this great god of gods who defeated Tiamat, who made the earth and the heavens, and who all of the Babylonians call Lord. Now, why did Nebuchadnezzar take the vessels out of the temple and bring them to Babylon? They have no significance to him, do they? What's his plan here, friends? As the drama unfolds, what starts happening is people from Jerusalem begin to be deported to Babylon. His plan is this. First, I'm going to start brainwashing some folks, and we'll see that next week. And then what I'm going to say is I'm going to say, look, I have the stinking things from your own temple from the God of your, I have them. So there must not be a God that you worship anymore at all because I conquered you. And so if I conquered you, then there must be no God at all. And so the tension, the drama of Daniel is going to be a few characters who get deported to Babylon and their struggle of Nebuchadnezzar saying, worship Marduk. And there's a few chosen lads who say, I'm not so sure that by taking some things from our temple into yours, that that means that our God is dead. Drama. Now, interesting thing to note. Next slide. In, um, in chapter 2, we see this interesting way of communicating God. And it's not in our, how we do it here, Matthias, strategically with all lowercase. Um, it actually is lowercase in the scripture. So when Daniel writes about Marduk, he writes about Marduk from a lowercase perspective. Um, Marduk, though worshipped by this land, has a lowercase to him. Because he's fake. He's not real. Uh, there's no truth to Marduk. He's fairy tale. I'm wondering for you tonight, as we begin this story of a few boys dropped in a pagan land beginning to make a stand for their next slide, their uppercase God. I'm wondering for you, what, what's your lowercase God right now? Like what for you has just become this, this obsession of yours, next slide, that, that isn't an uppercase God at all? The list under lowercase God is many. Relationships, money, sex, all kinds of addictions, um, approval, 
men in general. The list just goes on and on and on. Success, my job, whatever it is that takes the place. Now, for you and I tonight, lowercase God consumes an entire culture. This whole nation of Babylon worships Marduk, and yet Marduk is not real. What for you tonight has just consumed you in such a way that ultimately just takes a lower place standing? You're consumed with it. It's consumed your worship. It's consuming your time, your thoughts, your energy. And it for you has just, it's, it's been exalted to this place where only an uppercase God sits. The whole book of Daniel is this tension. Some who believe in a fake, false, lowercase God and a few who believe in an uppercase, real God. You see, here's the difference. There's all kinds of things underneath lowercase. We could list them. There's hundreds. There's hundreds of them. But there is one under uppercase, and that is Yahweh. King Jesus, the Lord of Lords, that's our God. Only one is under uppercase, my friends. And the moment that you and I begin to place anything else in an uppercase God position, we have lessened the value of the very one who made you, and you find yourself in the same place as a Babylonian, worshiping something fake and that will never fulfill And the powerful message that we saw tonight is there is an uppercase God. He's real and he's changing lives and he can change yours and mine. The drama in Babylon right now is great. And I'm praying that the drama in your heart is breaking. That as you look at the screen and as you think through all of these things that have become for you an uppercase God where only God can sit Friends, what tonight just needs to be repented of? Lastly, there's this beautiful picture that we have of a king who has all this greatness and all this wealth and anything that you could ever imagine. And inside, he feels like he has it all. And then he feels like he's conquered his foes in such a way that he can take all of their stuff and he can bring it to them and that in doing so, it will demoralize them. All of this value that he's placed in nothing. Think about the potential when a bunch of people place value in the one thing that is something. Think about the potential when you and I rid of any possible idolatry or lowercase God and we get consumed with the one true, real, holy, good God. Our friend Daniel does that. And the rest of this journey is going to be challenging you and I in the tension of this unfolding drama. But tonight we repent. Tonight you and I look at our lives. There is only one God, but it's possible you're worshiping many. God, I just, um, I thank you for the fact that you're holy and that you're good. 
and that you're worthy. And I don't have to try to come up with words to even articulate how powerful you are because you are, I am. You are great and worthy of our praise and our worship. And God, we just long tonight as we watch this drama unfold, we just long to find ourselves worshiping you and nothing else. And so God, would you cause our hearts to repentance tonight? Would you release the tension in our souls that is just desiring to worship all of these other things that are nothing? And will you stir our hearts now for the one thing in this world that is something? 